0: We pray together. Father, our students just led us wonderfully in worship. And they concluded, here's our heart, Lord. Father, I pray that that's the prayer of each and every one of us today. That, Father, that we would consider our lives and the things that we've entrusted it to. And, Father, that we would recognize that the only thing worth entrusting our life to is You. Father, I pray today that You would be honored um, through the preaching of Your Word as You have been glorified through the singing of Your praise. Father, I pray that as we um, open open Your Word now to study it, uh, that, Father, that You would capture our hearts and attention that You would speak to us, that Your voice would leap off the pages of Your Word and find their place lodged in our heart. Father, we love You and we thank You for the privilege to know You and to worship You today. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27 in of you today What a wonderful privilege we have to uh, gather together and worship. And some of you are here for the first time, and we're so thankful that you are here. And uh, others of you are here for a second time return visit, and we're delighted that you're here. And um, those of you that have been around for a little while, the fact that you show up again amazes me. It really does. But you keep coming, you keep coming, and uh, I'm so thankful uh, for that. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Resurrection Sunday coming up on April 1st, we are spending a significant portion of our time studying the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ. In studying the crucifixion of Christ, we are taking a long look at all that God's Word has to say and we're walking through a series of messages entitled The Cross from Christ's Perspective. The Cross from Christ's Perspective. And in this study... We are um, looking at what made the crucifixion of Christ unique and different from any other crucifixion. In other words, thousands upon thousands, if not a million people, have been uh, put to death by the cruel form of crucifixion. And yet, what is it that makes the crucifixion of Jesus unique and different from every other crucifixion? And we're looking at this through the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane was, Father, if it be Your will, let this cup... from me. In fact, he prayed it three times. And he always concluded that prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. As the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter being a little bit of the ambitious one and not wanting Christ to find His way to the cross took out his sword, his knife, and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers whose name was Malchus. And Jesus healed his ear, put it back on, and healed it. And he said this, "'Shall I not drink from the cup that my Father has given me to drink?' We've also seen in this study that the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever you want. And and He said, what do you want me to do? And He said, grant that we may sit on your left hand and your right hand when you come into your glory. And Jesus said this question, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? So the whole crucifixion of Christ from Jesus' perspective is described by the aspect of a cup. I see many people have cups in here today. Perhaps you've had some coffee, and coffee's made up of coffee beans and water and whatever else you put into it to ruin it, right? Um, Otherwise, coffee's just fine the way that it is, but that's okay, I understand. Um, But in other words, there are different ingredients that come in a cup that make whatever it is that you're drinking unique. For me, when I was growing up, it was Kool-Aid, or maybe it was sweet tea, right, where you brew the bags and put there. What we are studying is we are finding that there are three aspects of the cross, three ingredients in the cup of Christ, if you will, that make His um, suffering unique from every other suffering that took place that makes his cup unique and different we've already seen in our studies and for those of you that are new here today our messages are available online they're on apple itunes they're also in the google play store but they're also straight from our website Um, and you can go back and listen to catch up in the series if you would like to follow along and see that But basically, we've already seen the first element or the first ingredient in the cup that makes Christ's cup different. And that element was what the Bible says in Luke chapter 22, verse 53, the hour of the power of the darkness. In other words, we read in Luke chapter 22 that Satan entered into Judas to betray Jesus and to bring him to the cross. And the reason he did that is because God had granted or designated a specific hour of the power of the darkness to unleash and unload on Jesus Christ everything that they could possibly do. And we spent significant time considering what those things might be. Though we don't know everything that Satan has in his arsenal, we can rest assured that there was no greater battlefield on the globe that day than took place at Calvary, and all the forces of darkness would have converged for that designated time to, for the purpose of uh, perhaps doing their best to get Christ to sin, to give up, to come down from the cross, which he did not do. Today we are beginning to make our way towards the second ingredient and this is a message today that's going to lay the foundation for where we're going to go next week and where we're going to go in the weeks to come. And you're going to understand today a little more about why I entitled this series, The Cross from Christ's Perspective. So with that in mind, let's pick up in Matthew chapter 27, verse 33, and I'm just going to read down through verse 46. Matthew 27, 33, verse 46. Listen now to the Word of God. (coughs) And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull... They gave Him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, He was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified Him, they divided up His garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over Him there. And above His head, they put up the charge against Him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews." Matthew 27, verse 38, At that time, two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, (coughs) along with the scribes and elders, were mocking Him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him now. And if He delights in Him, for He said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, that is, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? As we read through this scripture, the tendency that we have as Christians, because it's so familiar, is to gloss over it and think that we know the details that are involved there. The tendency is to read through it and somehow reading through it missed the significance of the event that was taking place we who are Christians who are uh, used to hearing this story, who share the gospel by saying Jesus was crucified on our behalf, we who are constantly living in light of the cross and living in light of the words that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, we can somehow diminish the meaning and the significance of the actual event that took place on that day. In fact, it's easy for you and I to even come to the place to say, well, Jesus was God. And if He was God, and God can do the impossible, how hard could it have been for Him? After all, He he is God. Is anything too hard for God? And yet, I would remind you that we have already seen that Jesus did not walk through this on automatic pilot. He went where you and I were not and would not be able to go. In our past study, we've looked at First Corinthians chapter ten, that says that God will not test you uh, uh, beyond what you are able to handle or able to endure, but will make a way of escape. And we've asked this question: If you and I frail, fragile, finicky people, almost said females, I would have gotten in trouble. <laughs> kidding, kidding, kidding. Frail, fragile, finicky people. <laughs> If it would have been us, like Eve in the garden, followed by Adam, we would have given in just like that. God would not place upon him much more than what he could be able to handle, but what he's able to handle is so much more beyond what you and I would be able to handle without quitting. Without, particularly if you had the angels there, 72,000 angels we looked at last week, he could have called by name, Jesus says, to come and rescue them. Not that he needed a single angel to rescue him. So when we come to this particular passage of Scripture, it's easy for us to go through and say, yeah, 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 okay, I see it and get it. But I want to show you some things in this passage of Scripture that I hope will forever in your mind lodge The significance of what God did on that day. You see, you and I, we have the privilege of having the whole Bible, the whole book already written. On the day that this event happened, Matthew 27 wasn't yet written. The events were being played out that day, and Matthew, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, years later would record, with the aid and help of the Holy Spirit, a perfect understanding of what happened and what took place on that day. Because we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, because we believe in the infallibility of Scripture, because we believe that the Bible is, in fact, God's Word, that God chose men and He used men to write it, but the Holy Spirit of God superintended what they would write. They wrote according to their experience. They wrote according to their understanding. They wrote according to their own language. We see their personalities flourish through the writings of the pages of Scripture. But every word that has been written and preserved by the Holy Spirit of God was given to them... And there is no accident. There are no extra words. There are no words that can be left out. Everything that is there is there exactly as God intended. But I want you to think about the Jews who were there on that day when Jesus was crucified. (coughs) And you and I are used to understanding the story from the third-person perspective. The third-person perspective is if I speak in first-person, I'm talking about me. So I had a great day yesterday. If I'm talking in the second person, then I'm talking to you about you. I hope you are doing well today. And if I talk in third-person, then I'm looking at you and having a conversation with you, but I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about what took place over here. We're talking about a he, she, or it pronoun in the third person. You and I are used to reading the Bible and reading the text of Scripture, particularly related to Calvary, from the third person perspective. In fact, to kind of show you an, an example of this, here in this text, even as you see, and when, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they gave him wine, Matthew's not talking about he, that didn't happen to him, he's not talking about you, he's talking about they, he's talking about third person plural. Typically when we relate to the cross, we relate to the cross from the first person, I mean from the, from the third person. For example, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 53, famous passage of Scripture relating to the cross of Christ. The Bible says, and for example, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their faith, he was despised, and we esteemed him not." You see that? It's talking about a third person and it's looking at the cross from an external perspective and looking at it. And... "'Surely He Himself bore our griefs, and from our sorrows He carried, "'yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. "'He was pierced,' Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 said, "'He was pierced through for our transgressions. "'He was crushed for our iniquities. "'The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him, "'and by His scourging we are healed.'" All of us like sheep go away. And all of that is in third person. It is though we're having a conversation with someone else about what happened over here, what happened on the cross, and what happened to Jesus. We are from the ground, if you will, or from the perspective of the observer, looking at the cross. So when we come to Matthew chapter 27, we see something fascinating When we see this fascinating, we see that it directs us, it directs us intentionally by God's design to Old Testament passages of Scripture that gives us some insight of the view that Jesus himself would have had from the cross. Now now let's be clear, we're not reading into the text. We're not making the text say anything that it doesn't say. This is not us doing theological gymnastics and us trying to put ourselves in the other person's shoe to to see what's there. Let's look specifically again at Matthew chapter 27. And this time I want to point out some things to you. And I want you to see if you see the connection the way that I and many other scholars, theologians, pastors, whatever you want to call those who study the words, see the connection. And you're going to see the undeniable connection to the Old Testament and specifically to Psalm 22. So, for example, if we look here in Matthew chapter 27, verse 23, and if you take your place there, so I want you to hold your fingers in Matthew chapter 27, but then turn back into the Old Testament to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Now, depending on your translation of the Bible and depending on... Uh, what you have and also because remember the New Testament was written in Greek the Old Testament was written in Hebrew there is going to be some translation differences the Psalms that's quoted in Matthew chapter 27 which we will see in just a minute are either Hebrew texts that have been translated into Greek or it's, called, or it's a translation from the, uh, what's called the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So, for example, when we come to verse 35, Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, the Bible says this, "...and when they had crucified Him, they divided up His garments among themselves by casting lots." You see that? "...by casting lots." In other words, they took Jesus, they laid him on the cross, they nailed his hands and his feet, they placed a crown of thorns upon his head, they stood him up and they crucified him, and there in their own free will, doing exactly what they wanted to do, no one coerced them, no one made them. They took the garments of Christ and they they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And yet a thousand years before this event took place, I want you to see that it is a fulfillment of the Scripture found in Psalm 22, verse 18, which is clearly a messianic psalm that says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see that? And you say, okay, well, that's probably just coincidence, right? I'm not really convinced that just because a similar sentence is used in Matthew 27 and Psalm 22 that it's actually pointing to Christ. Let's, let's keep looking. Let's keep looking. As we go a little bit further in, so that's Psalm 22:18, 18. If we go a little bit further in Matthew 27, verse 39, the Bible says, and those, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, my translation says. New American Standard. And yet in Psalm chapter 22, verse 7, the Bible says this, All who see me, sneer at me, they separate with the lip. They wag their head. So they're wagging their heads. They're wagging their heads. They're casting lots for the garments. They're casting lots for the garments. If you come down just a little bit further in Matthew chapter 27, verse 43, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the Son of God. And if we go back to Psalm chapter 22, so it's interesting, did you notice this? As we work down through the passage in Matthew 27, we work up through the Psalms in chapter 22. As we work down through the chapter in Matthew 27, the first one we see is Matthew twenty-two eighteen. 18. The second one we see is Matthew 22, 7. Here we see Matthew 22, 8. I mean, excuse me, Psalm 22, 7. Psalm 22, 8. We see Psalm 22, 8. And Psalm 22, 8 says, Commit yourself to the Lord and he, let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Connection reference echoes, if you will, Matthew 27, 43. Let God deliver him, let God rescue him now. And after three hours in the darkness, when the light returned, Psalm forty-six, I'm excuse me, Matthew twenty-seven, verse forty-six Matthew 27:46 says about the ninth hour Jesus didn't say this Jesus shouted this mm-hmm. He cried out He would cry out and such and that now, now remember now now look think about this The darkness what time was Jesus crucified Six in the morning, six hours later, right? Three hours in the light, three hours in the dark. If it's dark at noontime, you think you get people's attention? absolutely it would and people would stop in their tracks those that were there would see but all of those darkness fell over the land we don't know to what extent of the land darkness fell we do know what the darkness is and why it came undeniably and i'm going to tell you that in a couple of weeks that's where we're going next What is the darkness over the cross? We know exactly what it is. Undeniable. Scripture tells us. And that's where we're going next. Three hours in the dark. The darkness departs. The Bible says the darkness departs. Everybody would be there. Everyone would stop. Everybody would be looking. They they didn't carry lanterns. There was no electricity. There were no flashlights throughout the day. They would have stopped in their tracks and wondered what in the world was happening, what was going on. Is it a weather event? Is it an earth event? What's happening? What's going on? And when the darkness departs, they would hear Jesus cry out, shout Eli, Eli, Lemma, Sabachthani. That is, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And in hearing Jesus shout out those words, every Jew that was there on that day would immediately think about Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, where the psalmist cries out, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Sorry. They would tie that together. And that would be exactly and precisely what would come to the mind of the Jews because it was a famous psalm from the psalm of David. Four times in Matthew 27 the Holy Spirit in recording that text refers back to Psalm 22. That's not the only psalm. There are other psalms there uh, as well. There are other Old Testament passages as there. Psalm 69 is found in there. There are other Old Testament quotes and sayings found in Matthew 27, allusions and echoes to the Old Testament. But only one of them is mentioned all of those times, and that is Psalm chapter 22. So Psalm chapter 22 would forever be tied to the events of the cross and what happened and what took place. In fact, it would be so close to the events and the things that happened that that those who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of Scripture, they say that because of the level of the detail in Psalm chapter 22... Uh, which by the way crucifixion had not even been invented by that time there was no such thing as crucifixion when Psalm 22 was written And yet with the level of detail and the level of things that we see and the level of detail related specifically to the cross, those who deny the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, they say that Psalm 22 was written after the cross and put back in the Old Testament. And they also say that Psalm 22 was written at a later date after crucifixion was invented and inserted in. Now now let's be clear, the enemies of Christ who were dividing His garments and those who were there at the cross wagging their heads and those who were there who heard Jesus cry out, they were not going along and saying, hey, let's do this in order to fulfill Scripture. And yet John chapter 19 verse 24 said, this happened so that Scripture might be fulfilled. They were operating in their own free will, but God had ordained the details of what would happen and take place and had said and recorded forever in the pages of Scripture the exact same things that would happen a thousand plus years before it happened. And yet the detail is so undeniable that people reject the veracity of Psalm 22. So what this does for me is, is this makes me want to go to Psalm 22 to see what else Psalm 22 has to give by way of the details of the cross. And what we notice is, when we go to Psalm chapter 22, is we notice that unlike Matthew 27, which was written in the third person, And unlike Isaiah 53, when we saw Him stricken, smitten of God, Psalm 22 gives us the crucifixion from Christ's perspective on the cross and what Christ sees and what Christ experiences on the cross from His perspective. In fact, there are eight views, seven views probably, seven views that we are going to see, and we're going to see one today, and we're going to see six next week. Just laying the foundation today and show you the first one, and we're going to come back next week, and we're going to look at all the different views of what Christ from a first-person perspective would have seen from the cross. Thus the name of the sermon series, The Cross from Christ's Perspective. First of all, I want you to see that Christ would look upon Himself. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God. Notice it doesn't say, Why has God forsaken Him? doesn't say that no one is looking to Jesus there on the cross in this messianic messianic means that the psalm related to Christ and saying why has God forsaken you they're not talking to him in second person this would be the words of Christ from the cross and here's what he says my God my God why have you forsaken me far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning if we could walk through this psalm, we can see the things that Jesus would see about himself hanging there on the cross. For example, go down to verse 6 I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. Notice the first person language. They separate with the lip. They wag their head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in man. Go go down, if you would, to verse 11. First person perspective. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help Many bulls, speaking of his enemies. He would see his enemies. We're going to talk about this next week. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Notice verse 13. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. Verse 14. This is what Christ would experience on the cross. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaw. And you lay me, you lay me in the dust of death. What did it look like from Christ's perspective? Verse, verse sixteen. For dogs have surrounded me; a band of evildoers have encompassed me. Notice what he says: They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. Jesus was so emaciated on the cross that his bones were visible. In fact, Isaiah 52, 14, 15 leading into Isaiah 53 says that he was marred beyond human recognition and listen, at this point, at this stage he was still recognizable as a man. Though he had endured all of this physical suffering and torment from God, his form would begin to shape as he experienced the hour of the power of the darkness and all the things that Satan and demons and the forces of hell would come and unleash and unload on him while they were there watching his form would begin to change before them. And here's Jesus looking at himself on the cross seeing those down there who had crucified Him seeing those down there who are believers in Him we'll see next week seeing those down there those who are not believers who Acts says became believers looking down and seeing those who rejected Him and would forever reject Him and would not see Him again until they stand before Him guilty in the book of the Revelation. And there... On the cross, Jesus looks at his emaciated body, and he sees his bones, not one of them was broken, and he sees his flesh ripped apart by the cat of nine tails, and he experiences the dehydration and the exhaustion there of the cross. They pierced my hands and my feet. They look at Him and stare. And He would see them dividing His garments among them. I think what's so amazing about this... And what I hope that you get and what I hope you capture from this message today... Couple, couple things. Number one, this was not easy for Jesus. Number two, Jesus did not have to endure this because of his guilt. He did not have to do this because he needed a way back to God. But I want you to understand. That He endured all of this so that you and I could be brought into the family of God and have our sin forgiven. He endured all of this that you and I might have access to God, be brought near, be brought into the family of God. No, beloved, when he was on the cross, you were not on his mind. I know that's famous cliche saying. And yes, the results of what happens on the cross is that you and I are indeed given access and brought into the family of God. But it was his love for the Father, and it was his obedience to him, and it was the plan of God that the Trinity put in place before the foundation of the world that Christ was fulfilling on that day. And you and I get the blessed benefits of his obedience, even to the point of death. Here's Jesus looking at Himself and seeing the things that He's enduring. Even to the point of screaming out, and you'll understand this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he didn't have to. But I don't know about you. But I'm so glad he did. You know what he was doing right there? He was taking every sin I've ever committed. And every sin that you've committed. The ones you know about and the ones you don't know about. And he was paying for them. So that we might be forgiven. You know what he was doing there on that day? you and I who are separated from God because of our sins, there's none righteous, no, not one. Mm If we are going to be accepted by God, if we're going to be brought into the family of God, then we need a substitute. We need someone to step in on our behalf. What Jesus was doing on that day as he looked at the conditions of his body and looked at things there, he was being the sin substitute for you and for me in order that we could be brought near and brought into the family of God. You know what he was doing on that day? He was making it possible for you whether you stand and raise your hands and pray or you sit quietly and bow your heads and fold your hands and close your eyes and pray or you drive down the road and pray. He was granting you and me. He was granting us access to God that we could pray and rest assured that our prayers are not only heard but answered according to His perfect will. You know what he was doing on that day? He was assuring that you and I and every person who would repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess Him with our mouth and be unashamed to follow Him in believers' baptism. On that day, you know what he was doing? He was making sure that we understood that our eternal destiny was forever sealed and he was providing a place in heaven for us on that day from which he has spent from the time He departed this earth until the time He returns again, preparing a place for us. You know what He was doing on that day? He was making it possible for God the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you and to seal you until the day of redemption when He comes again. You know what He's doing on that day? He's making all the promises of God. Yes and Amen in Christ. You know what He was doing on that day? He was canceling our sin debt. On that day, he was providing a way for us to be part of the family of God and to come together and to be the church, the visible body of Christ upon this earth. On that day, he was making it possible that we collectively together would do greater than he was able to do by himself when he was here on this earth. Because He says, greater things will you do. You know what He was doing on that day? He was making it possible for you and I to spend all of eternity with Him having the penalty of our sin forgiven Having the power of sin broken, that you and I would spend all of eternity with Him. Listen, away from the very presence of sin, never to struggle with it again. And it began. The plan of God was in place before the foundation of the world. But on this day that we read about in Matthew 27 that was prophesied a thousand years earlier in Psalm 22, we have our Lord there on the cross in perfect obedience to God, in perfect submission to him, in perfect perfect obedience to the plan of God. He is looking at himself and seeing all these things happen and all these enemies around Him and all the physical things that it's going on. And He does it for us. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful. When I see the glory of the cross... I'm thankful because it means I don't have to endure that. And I'm thankful that He endured it on my behalf. Three things were nailed to the cross that day. Jesus Himself was nailed to the cross. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that our sin debt, the record, the legal record of our sin dead was nailed to the cross and what do we say it is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more and on that day was a placard and that placard says king of the Jews look they were mocking him but they were mocking him with the truth because he is the king of the Jews And He is the King of the Gentiles because He is the King of everyone who would repent and who would believe and who would confess with their mouth. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, what you've just witnessed is one aspect of the love of Christ that He has for you. What you've just witnessed today, what you've just seen and heard and studied is one aspect of the extent that God has gone in order to bring you to Himself and to love you. And my prayer is that you would know Him. And that you would grow in your intimacy of knowing Him. And that you would spend the rest of your life, Christian, knowing Him in greater and greater ways. And as you mature in the faith, not only would you know Him, but you would make Him known. When we look at this, let's be thankful, but let's not just be thankful for us. Let's go and share the good news with others. If you have questions about your salvation, beloved, now is not the time right here in the service, but immediately following the service is the time for us to sit down and to answer your questions and make sure that your heart issues are settled before God. So I invite you to hang around immediately following the service, and we'll be ready to pray for you and to answer your questions and make sure that you understand the value of the cross. Will you stand with me for prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank You, Lord, for this day. And, and God, we, we are just amazed at what Christ endured. And even when it says that they pierced His hands and His feet and they could count all His bones, they looked, they stared at Him, they divide the garments in front of them. Father, we are amazed. That here's Christ on the cross, such love seeing experiencing this happening to him. Father, I pray that we would never get over it. I pray Father that it would not become that we would not become complacent about the things of the cross. Father, I pray that we would not gloss over the de- details. But perhaps even this week, we would reflect on the price that was paid in order for us to be brought near. Father, Jesus looks at Himself on the cross. And next, we're, we're going to see the other things that Jesus would have seen from the cross. And Father, I pray that as we walk ahead in this study, that Father, that we, we will never look at the cross the same again. Father, we pray that even today, that if we need to do business with You to make You the King of our heart, that Father, we would do so. Father, may You find stamped on our heart that Jesus is our King. We love You and we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.